We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. know what we are we know what we are calendar year champions league qualifiers we know what we are this is the arsenal vision post-match podcast my name is Alex Smith, the black man twitter yankee gunner that's what we are we are calendar year champions league qualifiers in fact one point off liverpool for the calendar year table and i think this is progress because back when we were you know sort of good and sort of relevant under arsene wenger we loved to talk about what we were doing for the calendar year and we're back to doing it so i think that's progress the only downside is that, like, I think, maybe not everybody, but most people had now started to warm to Mikel Arteta, and now he's out. He's gone. New manager, just for the game, hopefully. And we do wish Mikel Arteta well. Uh, obviously, COVID, no laughing matter, so we certainly hope that he is doing well, gets through it. It seems like he's going to be okay. And, uh, you know, if there's a game for him to miss, maybe not having to be too close to the Manchester City game is, is not the worst thing. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about the the lead up to the Manchester City game, what we might expect from that, a little bit on the transfer window, and a little bit of calendar year wrap-up. And here to do that with me is Paul. You can find him on Twitter at Pause My Pants. Hello, Pause. Woohoo! And Clive. You can find him on Twitter at Clive PFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. Tim is currently at a churrascaria in Brazil having all the meat. They have the meats, and he is having all of them. So that is that is the plan for him, and we certainly wish him well in his recovery from all the meets. Uh, I um, hear, surprisingly, he bumped into Alexander Lacazette at the Churrascao. Was he sweating? <laughs> starting to, yeah, just starting to. We know Clive is a fan of, of Lacazette and his uh, sweats post-meat consumption, as they have sometimes been called. But enough of that, that silliness. Clive, um, we play Manchester City, mm. but we do not play them until the new year. So we are officially... Calendar year Champions League qualifiers. How does it feel? Have you celebrated yet? Well, there's a lot of celebration online, isn't there, about um, people that have been supportive versus people not so supportive. And yeah, see, I told you, I told you, we're doing good. You need to stay with it, blah, blah, blah. So it seems a little bit like that. But um, mm. hey, look, there's still the, there's a massive determination to be right, isn't there, as football fans? When did I, that I, start? I, I think you can tell. <laughs> I got to level with you. I think anyone who's listening to me would know that I I am not a part of that culture and that I have actually had a massive determination to be wrong. So uh, I, I like to consider myself countercultural. No, just real quick. I know this is um, I know this is so, sort of a, a side point, and I don't want to get stuck into it. But I do think that in general, sometimes when the prevailing online sentiment is frustration and anger, and you're not feeling that, you're feeling patient or more optimistic, you can catch hell for it. Sometimes when the prevailing sentiment is ebullience and celebration and you're feeling that there are concerns, you can catch hell for it. And I can think of moments over the last several years where this has happened, whether it was the Emery unbeaten run or certain transfer signings or frustrations with Arteta in both directions. And what I think it's a reminder of is that the best thing we can do is have really good discussions and debates with people that want to debate in good faith on the merits and not be worried about whether we were right on this issue or wrong on that issue. Just update our our opinions 
and our, our discussions the best we can based on the information we have available and try to say what we honestly feel. And if people can say, hey, I got a counterpoint to how you honestly feel and here's what it is, take it on board. Doesn't mean you have to be right or wrong because I think what we've found is that let's say you are quote unquote right when the prevailing online sentiment is going the other way. You're going to catch a lot of hell. You know what you're not going to get? You're not going to get a lot of people coming back later being like, hey, you know, I was kind of a jerk, but boy, boy, were you right. Because that's not how the internet works. So like the best thing you can have is just good, rewarding debates. And I know that that's sort of a little kumbaya bullshit. So nice, uh, right. probably not worth a lot, but that's I like what we that. try to do here anyway. Yeah, we did. And you know what? By, <clears throat> my number one thing is just open your mind up to different thought processes. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean you have to agree. But by adding that to your own thought process, you, you become a better thinker about the game. You know, yeah. and that's it. That's how I do it, mate. And if it works for me, I like to learn. I've learned loads from you, Elliot. Loads. And you, Paul. Absolutely yeah. loads. Just the way you think. Hysteria. And, uh, and the, <laughs> talk faster. Yeah. And the priorities by which you look at the game. We all have different priorities, don't we? We have different mm-hmm. things that, and emphases. And and that's fine. Man, that's absolutely fine. If you go a bit crazy, then we're all here to talk it through, right? Simple. Sure. And, and we all have areas where we're stronger and weaker individually. Like, Clive, obviously, you're especially strong on the tactics side of things, right? Um, Paul is especially strong on the analogies. Um, you know, And like Eskimos, I know 100 words for your nasty parts. That's, I mean, that's really, really important. I feel that this may have already digressed at some level, uh, especially considering we were going to have just a punchy one-hour podcast here, and five minutes in, all we have discussed is nothing. Um, but now that we've patted ourselves on the back for having great discussions and debates, and because you are a listener uh, here, you obviously fall into that group, and you deserve to pat yourself on the back. So let's get into – and look, as far as the calendar year stuff, I don't want to dismiss that the signs are good. Absolutely do not want to dismiss the signs of good because what you're always looking for is the trajectory. And, you know, I think, Clive, when we look at Unai Emery for a minute, Unai Emery started on that long unbeaten run. The metrics did raise some red flags. The football maybe wasn't eye-catching, but it was an unbeaten run. He had us within touching distance of top four and collapsed spectacularly and then started the next season on a poor run. If he had done that in reverse he would certainly not have been sacked and we would have been saying, wow, he's really finally getting it working. The point is trajectory. And what I think is exciting about Arteta is whatever reservations I had or concerns I had, and they existed, I can look and say, I see an upward trajectory. I see an implementation of a process. I see an addition of the kinds of players and talent that can execute on that. And it's bearing fruit. So we still, you know, we don't want to be conclusive, but we want to be encouraged by the direction of travel. And I think that's something that we can probably rally around. Fair enough? Absolutely. I think um, learning about Emery has allowed me to learn about Arteta, if I'm honest, because I can mm. remember that that run, and I can remember you saying, um, there's, there's worrying things here, Clive. Mate, I was gone. I was in Kool-Aid land. I was gone. Do you know what I mean? I was thinking, this is great. Something different to Wenger, somebody really trying to coach them, and I'm thinking, you know, really being demonstrative on the sideline. I thought, yeah, this is really, really good. And then it slowly started. Then what changed for me was the the dressing room relationships, and that's what changed. It became a battle of human beings, and he didn't quite have the strength of character and maybe the emotional investment to stay with it. You know what? I take my six mil and I'll do one into the sunlight. And that's what he did. So when Arteta came along, I was a little bit more holistic in my thinking about where he's going. And I think, again, he picked up a Back of standards, if I'm honest with you. And I, when he first came and people were looking to get into him when he first hit his dips, I was quite strident. It was player-related rather than coach-related. I took a lot of pressure for that because people weren't convinced by the coach, which is their right, a first-time job, etc. But now we can see the players and now we can see the coach. And I think if any of us have got something to learn, all of us really, is what makes a player and what type of players work in the modern game, and I think we're much closer to that than where we were a year and a half ago. And it's been an expensive exercise, but I think we can all see there's a upward trajectory to steal your words, Elliot. Yeah. Um, well, look, I, I think that's probably enough on the macro for right now, if that's okay, Paul. I mean, it certainly you can weigh in on that, but I, I, I do want to steer it towards thing. the city. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, that, it's not a big point or a big discussion thing, but when I did a little calc um, from December 26th last year when our little Lord and Savior was delivered to us, Emil Smith-Rowe, mm. and we 
we changed how we played and we went hopefully on this upward trajectory our points per game for the for the last 24 games of last season is basically two points per game which is a great clip to run at for for where we want to be and this season for the 19 games it's 1.9 so just a, a smidgen off there if we hadn't well i guess we were always likely to lose the city and the liverpool games if we'd won say the brentford game and been a little quicker out of the blocks and uh, maybe picked up a three-pointer instead of a one-pointer along the way we'd be right there at that uh just just around the two points per game mark which is um i mean it's not a magic number but that's that's a number that gets gets you in the top four or top three frame most years so that's 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 a 76 pointer as a season so that's what we've run basically since smith row showed up just shy of the two points mark and if we can improve slightly and run at that two pointer mark for the rest of the season i think we're in good shape yeah all right so then uh i agree with that let's Start to turn our attention to the fact that Arteta is out, though. It feels harsh considering the trajectory we've been on to make the change now. I'm kidding, of course, but no. Uh, <laughs> what's your What's your take on how this impacts the upcoming game? I mean, we'll get into the upcoming game from a tactical standpoint and player and all that, but just in terms of him not being on the touchline, uh, Albert, how do, how, how do we say this? St- Stuyven, Stuyvenberg, Stuyvenberg. How, how are you saying? Any it? way we like. I, I'm going with Stuyvesen. That's wrong. But I like <laughs> Stevenberg, it. I think it's Stevenberg. Okay. Um, so, um, I, come on, guys. I mean, look, look. Here's the point. He's going to have AirPods. They're they're calling him AirPod Albert on Twitter. It's trending. What what do we think of this? Uh, it's probably easier than Albert Stuyvenberg. Uh, yeah, Stuyvenberg. Uh, can can you just can you just please? <laughs> Please, uh, uh, Paul. Any any yeah. thoughts? <laughs> no, nothing. Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> On your question. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? What? How's this impact? Yeah. Um, I don't think it makes any difference whatsoever. Uh, it could hurt, hurt a teeny bit. Could help a teeny bit. Like it'll give them a. It's. You hear managers say that when they've been, uh, like. They're not allowed to watch the game from the touchline and they have to watch from the stands. They see the game in a different way. So he may just see the game in a different way. Uh, he won't have the best view of the pitch because he's probably not in the stadium because like COVID and isolation and stuff. Um, so that won't help. But maybe perspective-wise, it'll be a little bit of a different feel for him. Um, pluses and minuses, I don't think it matters. I really don't. Um, and... Uh, I'm not convinced by the galaxy brain narrative, but that's a whole bigger discussion. Um, I think we just don't like losing (laughs) as fans. And when he does something a bit different because we're playing City or it used to be he gets galaxy brained against David Moyes and then we started doing well against him and beating him. So now he's not galaxy braining David Moyes. He's only galaxy braining uh, Pep Guardiola and... On the one hand, we want him to go into these games just playing our football the best way we can. And on the other hand, managers are going to make tweaks. They're not just, they're, they're going to look at the opposition and see, can I stop that guy hurting me? Because if I can stop that guy hurting me, we might have a chance. So uh, you're not going to be as, as smart and as clever as these guys with the tools at your disposal and not make a choice or two. But hey, if we want to call it Galaxy Brain, okay. Yeah, and and by the way, I I don't I mean I think the galaxy brain thing is overdone, but I do think that there are times when managers opt to make changes based on the opposition they're facing that look like maybe they're overthought in the context of what could have been done by going with what has been successful in the past. But like that's sort of like saying, "Hey manager, don't manage." <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I've I've liked you for all the stuff you do, but I just don't want you to do it in this game, like it, it's sort I of a weird set up the same way you did against Norwich. Cause that worked great. Y- yeah. And, and the, the problem, right. Is that you, you make those tweaks and they work and they're genius. You make the tweaks, they don't work and it's galaxy brain. It's sort of a post hoc way of saying, I think you managed wrong. 
Right, and Clive. The I mean, that, problem that's, is yeah. almost almost anything you do against City, you're probably going to look a bit. Yeah, stupid. exactly. <laughs> the, you know, it's it's what, oh, what is it? I'm going to sound like such a nerd here, but and I wasn't a big Star Trek guy, but I think there was a thing in Star Trek called like the Kobayashi Maru, and it was a test that of like the pilots of these starships, but it was designed so that there was actually no way to pass it. Every decision led to failure and death, and the point of it was to like just measure how you cope in adversity. And the, the measure of it wasn't about like whether you succeeded or not, because it was designed to not be succeeded. And then like the William Shatner character, like hacked the computer, cheated and created a way that he could win. And then they're like, well, that's cheating. And he's like, but I found a way to beat it. But this is all uh, very relevant. But the point is like facing city can be the managerial Kobayashi Maru in the sense of like, it's, it's an interesting measure of seeing what you try to come up with, but more often than not, it's not going to work anyway, Clive. <laughs> yeah, so... If if you're not thinking about how you can improve things, then you're not really a coach, right? So I think this is something that you think about all the time, you know. So it's something that I think about, and I've got no responsibility, right? So um, I think it's so when you make a good decision, then it's not overthinking; it's just a good decision. When you lose the game, then it's overthinking. So I do think there are games when you need to be a little bit more risk averse, particularly European semi-finals maybe you know and think about the ch- you may not have another chance but in the 38 game league season if you feel you've seen something and you want to make a change for it then absolutely you go with it right you absolutely do now we're picking on the trends at man city for example and there is a de- and that theory is a valid one i don't mind but it's it's not something that i hold my hat on to really um Agree, Paul, there a little bit as for arteta his style of coaching is very very hands-on I think he will be missed. He is all about presence. You know, just look at him, look into his face. Do you think that he's, he he holds that dressing room? There's no one else going to hold it next to him, right? So I think he'll be missed massively. I've done this myself. I'm not a manager now, but I sort of help a manager. And when the manager's not there, he is missed. He's the flagship. He's the totem pole of the team. The players have habits they, they expect certain things done at certain times, and the manager leads those conversations. Now, he may be able to still do that. Do, do you intentionally manage worse than him just so you don't show him up and the players will want him back? <laughs> no. You, no. You basically, you know, there are things you can do remotely, obviously, and there are things you can do with big tactical cameras so you can see the game remotely and wherever he is, by the way, um, to watch the game. So there are ways to get information across, but I think from a purely presence thing, he'll be missed. If it's one game, it could be seen as something as a, a motivational thing to do something for the manager. You know what I mean? But it's only going to be one game given the COVID restrictions right now. So I'm hopeful that we get away with it. But I must say, this is one game where I think he'll be missed because Manchester City are quite intricate and you need to know what they're doing very yeah. quickly and react to it. And I think this is Arteta's strength and we're going to miss him. I don't want to harp on this game too much because I I think it is sort of one of those things where you go out, you do your best, and you you just see what happens. Uh, Paul, we should be, though, in a different situation than we were with Manchester City away, uh, where we had both no players and went down to 10 men. Uh, Not the best Granite Shack a day, maybe. But I guess my question for you is is sort of how you're going to set your expectations this. I think people are really sick of being told that games are free hits. And I don't like the idea that they're free hits. I think I saw Rihanna Wall on Twitter say it, and I liked liked this better. It's not the game we're going to measure our season by. You want to do your best. You don't want to get battered. It's not a free hit. But it is not the game ultimately that will come to define how we think about how the team is playing in the season. We come into it in a weird position because we've had, I don't want to say easy games. We've made them easy, but easier opposition And we've been playing very front-footed, pressing in a lot of advanced territory. It's unlikely to be that way against City. So I'm curious how you think we might set up, if we set up differently at all, and what you think the impact will be of having to play probably a lot more on the transition and without the ball than we have been recently. Um, I think we'll set up, in a sense, exactly the same way we've been setting up recently. But what you won't see is Chaka drifting forward. Um, he won't become uh, an attacking eight when we're in possession in their third because we won't be in their third as much. Uh, you're going to see basically a, a, a two-man pivot in midfield because they're going to be in possession and we're going to be sitting back or battling in midfield on our way backwards. Um, the last time we played them, we pressed high up at the start of the game and we blew it with two stupid goals. 
that weren't really related to the pressing. Um, and so now we're going to be at home and our Ted is talking about the connection between the team and the fans. I, I like the way he talks about that connection these days. He doesn't talk about the the fans geeing up the team. He talks about the team geeing up the fans, playing yeah. in ways that get the supporters behind them, which I absolutely love. And he's been very consistent on that. It's not like a manager who's just in trying to get <laughs> trying to get the crowd to cheer for him and and save his ass. Uh, all the way through, he talks extremely clearly, woven into his thinking that having playing in ways that get the supporters behind you is the way to play. So I think we're going to press. Um, I think we're going to try and do as much as we can of what we did against those teams recently, uh, maybe with a tweak or two because like, we're playing against a team who knows how to play around a press. And he did something very different the, uh, the last time against City at the Etihad. Um, he had a significantly different pressing uh, um, scheme where he had the two guys who push up. It was probably Aubameyang and Saka. He had them quite wide apart. Um, like he was basically saying, have a go getting it to your full backs and we'll have a go getting it off to them. So he kind of exposed the middle a little bit and he had three centre backs who could push up into middle midfield to help out. And I'm not saying it worked great. Um, we'll never really know if it was going to work. It was risky. It was different. But it was a pressing scheme and it was different. And I think we'll have, we'll press them as much as we can at home at the Emirates. And that'll see Granit Chaka pushing up because we've always used him as a, as the next line of pressing. It's not a new thing that, oh, look, Granit Chaka's up in the attacking third pressing them. In fact, again, against uh, City, that was, do you remember that moment he, you saw Granit Xhaka chasing down their left back across to the goalkeeper. Mm-hmm. The goal, he rushes Ederson, who um, who fluffs it. We get we get it back, and actually Xhaka has a shot on goal when we when we do the recovery. Only he's slightly offside. So um, don't be surprised to see us pushing up and seeing something of the Norwich uh, uh, setup, but not very often. Basically, we're going to end up getting pa- pushed back at some stage. I, I think we're going to go for it the best we can. Mm. I mean, I I think that's right, Clive. I I think the the interesting thing here is looking at the fixtures that come up next and looking at when we're going to lose players. I, I think this will be our last game with Party and with Pepe eligible. The irony, I mean, it would probably be a pretty good spot to start Nicola Pepe if you sort of think, again, I hate to say free hit, but like, we've got him. Let's put the minutes into his legs. You know, so it's our one chance to kind of rest the guys we know we can't rest unless we maybe, I think we'll rotate for the FA Cup. I don't know about the League Cup, but do you have anything to add on how we'll approach this game? I I don't think we need to put a lot into it because we know what the challenge is. We know what the bar is for what we have to try to achieve. What do you, what do you think the, the approach looks like? Yeah. So we're developing into something now, aren't we? That we, that we can all see. Um, We have the, the four guys in the center of the pitch and we have two, uh, sprinters on the outside in Martelli and Saka. So um, those four guys rotate around depending on the state of the game. Sometimes a double pivot, sometimes in a, in a four diamond two, and sometimes the four two three one. Doesn't really matter where the ball is. You go and press it. You're never in your, you're never in your system for more than two minutes at a time. Depends what's happening in the game. So I do like the fact that we're controlling the central areas and we have an exit into wide areas. I quite like that. If you're playing Man City, who do have two centre backs at the back normally, although I noticed last night they played Nathan Aki as left fullback and they had a three, I don't think he'll play in this game. I don't think you noticed Man City kept all their subs on the bench, didn't use anybody. So I expect, you know, changes there. Maybe Chinchenko comes in, maybe, or Carl Walker comes back. I've just seen his fit, which is a shame because our, our trick could actually be getting into those wide spaces. And if we are playing against Cancelo, who's a very good player, but he can be caught pace-wise, Carl Walker can't be caught pace-wise. Right? So there's, no, there's just no human being faster than him, right? So, um, But he has been out for quite a while, so that would be interesting to see what they do. If they play Nathan Aki against Saka, that's going to be manslaughter. So we don't, you know, if they do that, well, good luck because I think we'll get the ball into that area. So that's what I would do. I would try to control the centre as much as we can, keep our distances nice and tight, 
and we spring into wide areas and then we under we underfill underlap there from that space onwards. I'm a bit worried about Tommy Asu not seeing the picture of him yet. The training video has just come out, so let's see if he's in that. If he's not in that, we are now relying on Rob Holding to be agile in that slot in the half space, which we know that Man City are fantastic at drilling into half spaces. So that worries me. It does worry me. And but it is what it is. I, I'm, I've learned not to get too excited about these games anymore because I always get excited about them. We're going to win them. Um, hmm. And then the, then the first five minutes happens. You think, oh my god, we are far away. But I've watched a number of games recently again. You know, with City, uh, Chelsea, Man United. And they're competitive football matches in the main, apart from maybe City on occasion. There's no reason why we can't be competitive. You know, just be competitive. If other teams like Brentford can go out there and be competitive, well, so can we. You know, particularly yeah. at home. And there is a different vibe in that stadium at home. There's no Wolves game. I wish that was five o'clock. If it's five o'clock, my goodness, that'll be going. That'll be going mad. Right, so, so it's a different vibe in that stadium, and I think that could really lift us to a different place. So that's what I'm hoping for as one of my intangibles, shall we say? Yeah, Paul. Uh, quickly, final word on the idea of this being a free hit. By the way, like I, I, yeah. I, I hate the expression because I think it just ruffles people's feathers in terms of like our stature in the game. I, I think it is intended to mean that this is a game where theoretically, if you don't get all three points, you don't get the same kind of punishment for it in terms of the reaction. I, it's hard to articulate. Do you have a thought on that? Yeah, it's not a free hit. You go for it. Uh, it's a measuring stick. But after it, you blow it off, right? If you don't get the result, if if they kind of break us halfway through and our scheme kind of falls apart and we're just a bunch of guys defending, like you don't say, oh, well, this team did better against City and that team gets did better against City than we did. We must not be very good. Well, like you lose, you lose, you move on. Uh, maybe a long time before we're actually good enough against Manchester City. Being good enough against almost everybody else is plenty good enough. You just blow it off. And that's not just the player, the manager, that's the supporters. It won't be the pundits. It won't be the media. But we've got to just say, oops, and on we go. Day mm. after, you know, we'll talk about it. We'll assess it. We'll, we'll analyze it. Then you blow it off and you go again. That's basically it. Yeah, yeah. So, well, let's talk about the state of evaluating results and point totals in the context of what's happening with the league generally then. Because, Paul, what we're seeing, I hate to say parity because there is not parity in the Premier League and there's not parity of spending. But the gap is closing you don't have as many buffoonish, ridiculous managers in the league as you once did. And we are seeing scenarios where teams can be pegged back. Teams can drop points really in any situation. I mean, I thought Leicester were sort of lucky to hold on for the points against Liverpool, but they did it. Um, you know, we saw Brighton hold Chelsea uh, with a late Danny Welbeck winner. That guy, get in. Um, but I, I actually thought that it was well-deserved and actually it could have been uh, more than one point for Brighton, given the way that game went. We saw Newcastle get a point that could have been three points, really probably should have been three points against Manchester United. So, you know, I, I am sort of inclined to think, Southampton, by the way, beating West Ham away, I'm inclined to think that we are going to struggle psychologically as fans, and we've seen some of this last season. You look at how we've done over the calendar year, we're a point off Liverpool. It's a good haul. I think it's saying, you know, like 72 points, 71 points, something like that. Um but you drop dumb points. And I'm starting to think that the problem we're going to have is every team is going to drop dumb points minus maybe, you know, City and to some extent Chelsea and Liverpool, although five draws and two losses for Liverpool, six draws and two losses for Chelsea. How do you look at the way we evaluate what we should be doing, not in terms of table position, but point acquisition in games we play in? Is it purely just seeing the, the style of football and the performances you want? Because... I, I don't think there's any team, certainly outside those top three, but even maybe including a few of them, that's just going to get on these kinds of runs where smaller teams aren't pegging you back, aren't getting points off. Yeah, and I think that feeds into the why you don't uh, burn a huge amount of emotional energy on the city <laughs> <Good> result, <laughs> city <Okay>. afterwards. <laughs> uh, like, it's just a discipline. You say, fuck it, that's not what decides our season. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, the res it's beating the lower and middle-level teams and 
being competitive against the people in around you and just above you. Um, and the only thing I'd say right now is I think we might be in a little bit of a false bubble in that this COVID and December game for everybody, including European games for some some teams, is kind of the great leveler. So suddenly teams like Liverpool and Chelsea, you know, West Ham are going south. Um, uh, Tottenham, who should be on the rise because they're nice and rested, are like they're a bit screwed up because they haven't. They may be rested, but they haven't played. Like I just think it might be a little bit of a false dawn in terms of the leveling it, of it out. I I think you might go back to seeing more of a tiered tiered structure within the within the league once everybody comes back from this January break and the cup games are behind them. Um, but from our perspective, um, like what we got to do is what we got to do uh, match those in and around us and below us be very consistent um have a way of playing football and um if if we start to crank it and like when, what's impressed me in particular about arsenal is uh, he says jinxing everything <laughs> we've been really really good at fitness uh, for especially for Arsenal, I mean, we used to be like the worst. Uh, then we got to being bang average in terms of keeping players fit. And like, we're the team who wants to play all December and doesn't want any COVID allowances for anybody because we're ready to go. You know, a guy here, a guy there. Uh, we, I don't know if we've just got super lucky, but we must have done something pretty good as well. Well, we don't have Europe. I mean, that you know, worth worth mention. Yeah, yeah, but but you know what I mean. Yeah, um, of course. We we've uh, we're pro- I don't. Is there a team apart from maybe City, um, and they have their troubles? Who's in better shape uh, in terms of player availability, squads, fitness, consistently? We've had some COVID, but not. A, we might actually be reasonably good at managing our COVID protocols. We've done a really good job. And if we can keep that going for the rest, I used to say like a year or so ago, just leave our players alone, God. Just leave us fit to see what we can do. Now, it turned out it didn't solve all our problems, but I think it's a big component going into the second half of this year. If we keep these guys fit, we don't have Europe. Uh, We can play very consistent lineups, um, established playing patterns. You know, we don't like losing Tommy Asu. Ben White did a good job, but he's he plays differently to Tommy Asu. He has to learn the scheme there. We want as little of that as possible and as much of playing our team, our football, our way against the teams around us and below us for the rest of the season. And yeah, we might actually crank our way into the top four. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I... I certainly wouldn't rule it out. I do agree that like one of the challenges we're facing right now is just the fact that like um, because teams are on so many, there's such a disparity in the number of games played, some on 17, some on 18, some on 19, some on 20, um, that it is a little hard to figure out where teams should be in the table. But for me, that's why I think the thing that I really like, honestly, is the idea of whether I can connect to the football we're playing and like the football we're playing because I think if I believe the process is good, I trust that eventually the outcome will follow. And I think I've tried to be clear recently that I love watching the football we're playing. And I get that some of that is because of the teams we've faced. But even against West Ham, I think we we saw it very clearly. And, you know, they're not too shabby. I mean, I realize they're on a bit of well, a the, poor the run The other right now. thing we're seeing is good football for 90 minutes, not for 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the Everton game, that first half was really dispiriting. And it wasn't dispiriting because of the result. It was because it was very tame, sort of uninspiring, dull football. But that has gone. And and I think we we look like a team that, that can play football that I can, and again, I'm just speaking for me, that I can connect with, that I can enjoy watching, that I think makes the best out of the best players we have. And that is exciting. I want to... We're, we're getting yep. the toothpaste up the tube. And to your oh, point of, go. it's very hard to know where <laughs> we're at. But that's like... I said it once, I didn't realize, like, for me, it just works for where we're at. And, like, the last four or five games, the toothpaste is right up the tube. We're in the final third. We're playing our football there. Um, that has not been really the case in in uh, in Arteta's tenure. 
or even or in Emery's tenure, where we're playing our football, where Arsenal ought to be playing, and we're finally getting there. To yeah, your point hope. on the, it's hard to know where you're at because different teams, different number of games, blah blah blah. They'll have a backlog. They'll have to catch up the other teams. So that's that's the upside of it. Um, but that's why I was interested in the points per game. If we can keep this clip. We, we we can only control what we can control. If we can keep it around this two points per game for the rest of the season, we don't need to keep staring at, oh, they're one game behind, one game up, because that'll move around. We'll, we'll care in April and May. But for now, if we can keep it at a clip of two points per game, we're in good shape. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Let's let's shift gears. Uh, Clive, you want to just weigh in on that? And then I want to shift gears to how we handle January with some absences and, and maybe some new new arrivals. Yeah, when I hear you guys talk about this stuff, I I, have to, I feel myself duty bound to explain why it's happened. Right, so why are we playing? You are uh, duty bound to do that. In fact, yeah. that's why you're on the podcast. I, I recommend <laughs> you do it. Well, yeah, I mean, if you think about what Arteta's has invested in this year, he's invested in defenders, isn't he? You know, through his reign, he's invested in defenders, and he come from the Pep School, where the most important player in your team is your goalkeeper. Right, so just the addition of Ben White, the in reintroduction of Gabriel, introduction of Tommy Asu and Ramsdale, has completely changed our confidence about where we can stand on the pitch. And everything moves forward. If that moves forward, then everything else steps forward. And then if we're playing in the right areas, on occasion we don't, Everton away, for example, but since then we've fixed it, we have a greater chance to when push teams, squeeze distances, and then suddenly people talk about pressing. No shit, we're pressing. Well, we're, just, we're just nearer people. You know, and, and if you're a footballer, you're naturally competitive and the ball's in the area, you go and get it, right? So it's all about where you start from. And it's, it's a big thing for me, this. If you watch what Patrick Vieira done at Costa Palace, first thing he did was change his centre-backs. And suddenly everyone was looking at him differently. Change the centre-backs, make sure they are agile, quick, can run over their shoulders, are good on the ball. You can progress the ball into the centre areas and everything moves forward and stays forward. You should put pressure on the ball, the end exit pass will be poor and you get it again and you create waves of attack. If you don't put pressure on the ball, you are now dancing to their tune. Yep. And that's what's happened historically and now we're sustained a little bit longer, so we're a little bit less punk rock. Now, if I was to ask you, and it's probably coming on to the, the January signing thing, we're a nice team, likeable team. I can remember talking to my friends in the stadium saying the best thing about going to watch Arsenal is the social now, the best thing about going to watch Arsenal is watching Arsenal. It's changed. The atmosphere has changed. All around the ground has changed. There's connectivity within that club. Now, what's the next phase? What does that look like? What attributes do we need to add to take us from being a really nice top five team in the calendar year on most metrics to we want to be top two, top one? What is that going to take? And I think that's the thing I've been thinking about when I've been lying in my bed sick, <laughs> thinking about that. Um, and I've got some ideas. <laughs> uh, and that's, yeah. why, that's where my head we're gonna is going to get to that. Yeah, no, we're going to get to that. And, and I mean, doing the rewatch on the Patreon side for the Norwich game, like the, the thing that you see so clearly about why pressing matters, and I, you know, I was saying this to Paul, look, we sometimes talk about teams as they're shit, they're good, these players are shit, these players are good, but... Like, all of these players in the Premier League are actually really good in the sense that if you give them time and if you give them space, they can kill you. They can pick a defense-splitting pass. That's how they got to this level. Like, I mean, I'll use Shaka as a great example. I watched Shaka for Switzerland in the international game, and he's an absolute stone-cold killer. And in some of these games, he's been a stone-cold killer because he's had a little time and a little space, and my goodness, can he pick a pass? We've seen that not necessarily be the case with him when the time and space isn't there. And so I think it is important to add a press, not just because, oh, you know, good teams press, but because when you don't put pressure on the ball, you start to level the playing field a bit because you're you're letting mediocre players feel comfortable. And as Clive said, you know, sort of dance to the to the to the beat they want. We're dancing to their beat, so you don't want that to happen. Um, let's let's shift gears and look towards uh, January, because I do think we have a unique challenge in January, given potential outgoings, Afcon absences, the the fixture congestion, and and what that means for maybe what we'll do uh, with the transfer window as well. 
But again, whenever we talk about the addition of new talent and the need for new talent, I feel compelled to tell you that there is one fantastic way to add new talent to your roster, and that's with Indeed. Indeed is a hiring partner that gets you what you really want, a short list of quality candidates as fast as possible, because you can do it all. Attract, interview, and hire all at Indeed. And if you're Mikel Arteta, coach the team through AirPods in another guy's ears. Don't struggle on your own to find quality candidates. Indeed can help you hire the right people right now. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process, so you can find talent with the skills you need through tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Beat some YouTube comp with terrible music in the background. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description, and you can even invite them to apply right away. So if your job description is striker, who can do a little bit of what Lacazette does and a little bit of what Aubameyang does, they'll find you that. They're great. With Indeed Instant Match, over 90% of employers get quality candidates as soon as they sponsor their job post, according to Indeed data. Candidates you invite to apply through Instant Match are three times more likely to apply to your job than those who only see it in search, according to Indeed data. Who needs key interaction? Get started right now with $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash vision. $75 credit at Indeed.com slash vision. That's Indeed.com slash vision. Offer is valid. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Clive, is that enough of that? Enough, enough. Enough, enough. Well, let's get on to how we hire, Clive. Um, We could be losing Ainsley Maitland-Niles. We will be losing Thomas Party to the African Cup of Nations. We will be losing Mohamed Elneny to the African Cup of Nations. We did sell Joe Willock to Newcastle, which I think looks like pretty savvy business at the moment. We do not have a whole hell of a lot of central midfielders. Uh, Granit Xhaka and uh, look to Albert Sambi Lukanga. That's sort of... It, maybe, unless you think Charlie Patino is going to come in and suddenly be a wunderkind superstar. So let's start with the midfield. How big an issue is it? How important is it that we maybe don't let Maitland-Niles go, depending on what the offer looks like? And uh, how do we solve it? Yeah, well, Joe Marino will no doubt want him on, you know, the first possible day you can get him because he's, you know, a big supporter of Arsenal, as we know. Um, I think for Ainsley's career, he needs to go and play. So he's obviously, he looks as though from a distance that he switched off and so he needs to go and play. So good luck. So we need to go and do something there for me. And we may as well bring forward a buy maybe that we're going to do in the summer. Might as well see if we can bring it forward now. And into something that we can still fit to our model. You know, and there are a couple of options out there. I think um, one thing I'm thinking about when it comes to looking for midfielders and and even particularly midfielders, I think because we're playing, obviously we're playing a lot more positional play, I think it's important we we have multi-dimensional players, the players that are happy squeezing to the touchline but also can play on the inside. I think that's really key. If you look at the Man City players, they're very comfortable in all the zones on the pitch. I think we have a we have a lot of that, but we can still add a bit more. So when you're looking for the attributes of a centre midfielder, I've moved away from the East Basuma type to stand still and just make me feel comfortable that somebody's there going to win the ball. I think it's important that we have a bit more all round ability to work up and down, but also travel with the ball and pass the ball. But most importantly, is get away from pressure. And then when you get away from pressure, be able to threaten the opposition. I think that's the key thing. The way we're playing, with we are sort of playing a single pivot, but we're sort of rolling around into a two at times as well. So I think that player needs to have the ability to do many jobs next to Thomas Pye, for example, or Samuel Lukonga, who I think is a Thomas Pye takeout, shall we say, in the future. And I think having that ability to just move and travel but threaten with energy and keep the energy high, Leicester City style, I think that's where we're going as a club. So that's what's in my head when it comes to midfield targets. Yeah. Uh, Paul, thoughts on that? I mean, I I don't think you ever want to be in the short-termist position of saying, hey, we've got a bit of a need for this month, so let's make a deal we wouldn't otherwise make. Um, we've seen loan deals where we've tried to solve positional shortfalls be really, really bad in some instances. Uh, Kim Kallstrom obviously comes to mind. Dennis Suarez comes to mind. If that's even his name, I'm just going to say, I think that's his name. Um, But at the same point, I do think if you have 
people on your radar, and I would think midfielders are certainly on our radar, if they were planned to be summer moves, pulling them forward or trying to loan them to buy them in the summer can work. We certainly saw that happen with Odegaard. So do you have a specific thought, maybe not name-wise, but just in terms of how we cope with this period and the right way to do that, You know what we might be looking at? Um, I think it's going to be really tough to get a player to make a difference in January that we don't really need in February. Um, like by the time you get them in, settled, blah, 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 they're still working out which way's up. And like, are they helping or hurting if you drop them into your lineup? Um, I think we're going to try, uh, like unless there's the perfect guy ready to go that we're getting early from the summer and he's available early on, and like a Martin Odegaard, super smart, came in, was could contribute from the get-go. Um, that's not everybody who comes in. We've seen players who have fitness issues, who they just, you know, where do they get their dry cleaning do- done in London? And it's still the middle of January, right? There's, a, there's that whole uh, adaptation to where you are, who you are, who the players are. <clears throat> the number of players who can come in in time, be fully match fit. So if they're fully match fit, they're playing for somebody somewhere uh, most games, so they're kind of useful, so they won't really want to sell them. I just don't think it lines up for us, given, like, it's not February or March we're trying to fix, it's January. Mm. Um, It's quite interesting in midfield, though, because we'll have Sambi and Chaka, and that's basically it, and... Uh, Party has been playing the midfield hub, so Sambi being the right footer, uh, you know, maybe we go back to two in the middle for 90 minutes in every game with those two guys. Um, But it would be a bit of an adaptation of how we play as well, because uh, when Sambi has played with Party, he's playing on the left, um, typically. And so we're going to swap those two around. We'll only have the two of them. I think we'll try and make it work with other players like Smith Rowe, uh, like Martin Odegaard, maybe acting as a third, more of the third midfielder, a little less of the tens. Solutions like that. Um, you know, Ben White has always mooted as he's played midfielder for uh, Leeds. He hasn't really. Um, <clears throat> they just put him on the team sheet in that spot. Like one of the games was against Huddersfield interestingly enough, when his job was actually to man-mark Emile Smith-Rowe for 90 minutes rather than do the Calvin Phillips job. Um, He hasn't really played that midfielder role from what I could see. I went back and checked out those games the best I could. I I don't think he's really played a couple of games as as a CM, even though if we can see that in his game. Like, we basically have two dudes maybe Charlie Patino for a few minutes and certainly cup games to kind of share the minutes. Um, And that's it. And I think that's how we'll do it. We'll try and fudge our way there and hope not to get hurt. Yeah. Um, I I think the other thing that maybe plays in our favor a little bit, I hate to say this favor, it's a a clumsy wording, but go with me on this, is that a lot of other clubs are going to be uniquely challenged during this period because of AFCON, because of COVID and injuries uh, themselves. So it's not a situation where, you know, I can think back to certain times under Arsene Wenger where you'd be frustrated because you'd be like, ah, oh, we're a fullback away from competing for a title. Or, oh, you know, if we just brought in a center back, it was fixed. Or the year we lost the title to, to Leicester, you know, we probably were a, a midfielder away. But in this situation, it's not just Arsenal being short at a position and other clubs being able to catch up, catch us up because of that. I think there are a lot of clubs that are going to find themselves struggling. So, Clive, as a final thought on this before we maybe look back on the year a little bit, are there are there any other priorities you see for January? I mean, I think we know the summer midfielder striker. Like, that would probably be the, the thing that people would say, let's go get something done there. But for right now, I I am inclined to say that you know, we we have three three games in January in the two league cup ties and the FA Cup tie. That if you had to throw them away, and by throw them away, I just mean play a week inside. You know, use academy players. I, I think as long as we are really genuinely fighting to be back in the Champions League, I don't know that too many people are going to be outraged by that. And I can guarantee you, Liverpool are going to play, or I would, I would assume, an extremely weakened quote unquote side against us in the League Cup. I, I, they won't even have a choice since Salah and Mane won't even be available. So 
I, I think you could get through it. I think you could manage your way through it and not do anything. But, you know, your, your final thoughts on how we get through that period? Yeah, it's a good thing is um, Chelsea and Spurs have got similar amount of games with, with the Carabao Cup game for them as well. So if you look at our run of fixtures, right? So you've got City, I'd go strong. Liverpool at home, I'd go strong. I'd rotate for Forest away and I'd rotate for Liverpool away. Also, in that competition, you have five subs. So you have your subs on the bench. Then I'd go strong for Spurs, obviously, and then strong for Burnley. So there's there's a period to manage there. We do have good shadow players, but some of those players are starting to feel a little bit on the edge. It's going to be interesting to see if they're talking to their agents or not. And made an answer the first one. And I wouldn't, you know, I'd want Arsenal to keep him for as long as possible. Why not, right, to get through this period? But we'll see what happens and we'll see how motivated he is. But there's a period to play. There's two or three games for him to play. And you never know, the deal he's not on the table right now. There could be a better one around the corner. So, um, that's what I would try to do to get through this period. But the good thing is, we're not the only ones going through it. The people that we're really competing against have got difficulties themselves. Lots of games to to backfield, for example. Spurs have had a number of games cancelled, but they were away games. Their first away game they played the other day, um, they didn't make it right. didn't go over the line, even against 10 men against Southampton. So, challenges for all of us. We're in not a bad place, Elliot, but... Mm. let's see let's see it's a, it's a different time with covid being around etc i mean if you look at it after january 1st we don't play another game that i regard as mattering that much until january 16th like we're in a position to sort of give the team a, a winter break and i realize that i mean first of all nottingham forest away like you don't want to lose the fa cup i get it but you know you you should be able to heavily heavily rotate for that and i i am just speaking for me now i know some people will not like this I just cannot be arsed, as you might say, about the League Cup. Like, I don't think anybody is going to celebrate lifting the League Cup. We if might we need pay- to stop Spurs winning a trophy is my only thing <laughs> about the League Cup. I mean, look, I-, I hear you. They'll find a way not to win the trophy. Don't worry. Don't you worry about that. If they get Liverpool in the final, I think, I think we've seen Liverpool do the job for us in a much bigger cup under those circumstances. But, like... I I guess what I'm saying is if we took that super seriously and three days before Tottenham away, we ran ourselves to exhaustion under Liverpool's press at Anfield so that we could get to the League Cup final and it doesn't go well at Spurs away in the league, no one's going to be feeling very good. So I would be managing this to be in tip-top shape on January 16th because there's only one more game. Like The funny thing is everyone's like, oh, fix your congestion. We play three games that matter in January. The City game and the Spurs game are separated by 15 days. And then we have a week to Burnley. And after that, it's February 10th, you know, uh, uh, cup fixtures aside, to Wolves away. So uh, it's actually a very spread out and manageable period if we just don't overdo it in the cups. And that would be, you know, that'd be my inclination. And, I, you know, I think by then, you could be looking at a situation where you go to the Wolves game with your African Cup of Nations players back. So it's, you know, it's two games. It's Spurs away and it's Burnley at home. That's it, other than the cup ties. I think if you look at it through that lens, it sort of changes the way we think about this period. And I, I think we have to look at it through that lens as we sit right now with a legitimate shot at top four. Hell, even Chelsea, you know, they're having a wobble. Manchester United, not exactly tearing it up. And I realize as we speak, they're going to be playing very soon. But, you know, a game where... I mean, let's face it, we're, we're expecting them to win that one if they can win anything. So we'll see how it goes. Let's just quickly look back on the year that was, though, as we get ready to say goodbye to it. I, I want to start this segment by saying thank you to everyone who shared this year with us. I think it was a another challenging year globally, but a year where I got to meet a lot of people in person, sadly not in Vegas, but happily in, in London. I got to meet people who work at the club who are amazing. We got to help the uh, Arsenal Foundation, and we will do so again. We got to do our live event. We got to share... Uh, a lot of episodes and a lot of conversations with a lot of wonderful people. So I want to say thanks to that. I got to meet Clive for the first time ever and Tim for the first time ever, uh, James McNichols for the first time ever. So, you know, some some amazing memories with a lot of people. Uh, still haven't met Paul. So, again, just a really good year all around, Joe. Um, <laughs> or Scott. But I will actually be meeting Scott in January. So a lot of good stuff and and obviously winning the uh, FCA award for the podcast thing, which which was incredible. But I think for Arsenal – It was a sneaky, great year in some ways. A year where 
We went into it with Arteta on the rise. It continues to be on the rise. Maybe two bumps in the road in terms of the Europa League exit and the those first three games this season, which I was always perfectly willing to throw out, even if the emotion of that moment was hard. So, Clive, I'll start with you. Let's let's just talk about your just thirty thousand foot view. Your enduring Arsenal memories from twenty twenty one. Maybe a player you fell in love with, or a thing you learned, or what is it about Arsenal in twenty twenty one that you will take with you into twenty twenty two? Well, the number one thing for me is going back to the stadium and then being filled up again, and how people are feeling. You know, honestly, and I mean, you you was there for one of them. That was that was a good one. There's been better ones. Villa and West Ham and Spurs, just like in, incredible. And um, I don't think you can put a price on that. And I think um, getting people together again in, in a pandemic period and just being able to be normal around the stadium and in the ground was, it meant more to me than I actually realised. And that crystallised particularly around our, our live event. And as you know, those evenings were incredible right so um i i'm never going to forget those moments on on the pitch um i think the reintroduction of players that we like has, has transformed it for people and i suppose if you want to pick one player which i think was your original question that i normally ignore um i will <laughs> this say one, this one was open-ended it's, it's whatever <laughs> I, 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 i'm really pleased for what, the impact of what Aaron ramsdale has done right i think not just, yeah, not just. I think Aaron Ramsdale primarily. I think Osaka and Smith Rowe we know about, um, but Ramsdale. No one. I don't think anyone could see the impact he was going to have. There was, um, you know, I, I could see he was a, not a bad goalkeeper, but he's not. He's a very good goalkeeper, and he's not a bad bloke. And I think being a good bloke is something that we need to think about a lot more when we're buying our players people that contribute and give of themselves. It's no, it's no longer good enough to bowl into Arsenal, earn a load of money and walk out of that and doing an interview over three, four years. It's no longer good enough. You're in an elite environment. You've got to give of yourself. And these players are prepared to do that. And, um, and, and I love it. I absolutely love it. And I think it's changing our experience of watching Arsenal because of the people we have within the club. And I think that's made it a little bit less... Um, manager centric, which I love. I just like to look at the football and not and not every game be a referendum on somebody's ability. You know, I mm. don't like that. Right. So, um, so I'm really, I'm really enjoying it, mate. Really enjoying it. Well said, really well said. By the way, if you want to look back on our predictions, which we'll always revisit towards the end of the season at arsenalvisionpodcast.com under stuff, you'll be able to find our 2021 predictions and, and see the spreadsheet. I think some are interesting, some are bad, some are actually quite good. The downside is we did them before the final transfers were made. So a bit of a miss there. Paul, what's your enduring Arsenal takeaways from, from 2021? Um, obviously, it's going to be leaning towards the the latter parts of 2021. Uh, recency bias and what's important going forward. But the injection of hope. Um, there were, I, I always felt, and I felt this for Emery too, but with Arteta, a lot of my continued uh, support for him and enthusiasm for him would rest on how he develops our younger players. And then we go and buy six of them <laughs> and bring them in. I guess Odegaard was kind to here before. So on top of like a big measuring stick for me was uh, and we maybe take it as a slam dunk now that Saka would keep progressing, Smithrow would come on that Martinelli would become the player we hoped he might have been, um, that we all believed he was when he joined us, but like it was almost all potential and a couple of quick, great performances and quick, great, great goals for Martinelli. How many, like that's the Adnan Janazai thing. Oh, look, he's a worldie. He's played a couple of games, scored, scored a couple of screamers, disappears from view. Uh, I think he's over at Real Sociedad, used to play with uh, Martin Odegaard. <clears throat> And um, that isn't what has happened. Nobody's slid backwards, really. Uh, we now, it, I'm glad we're talking now, not a month ago, because Martinelli is well in the mix to the point where we're not quite sure how you get him out of the team right now. 
if you ever get him out of the team and everything starts to make sense. And so, and then you add the five, six players we brought in, Ramsdale, Tommy Yasu, and like, you just see hope and potential, but potential that's being realized right now, not not crossing your fingers that this might be something uh, in the future. And I think in terms, like to Clive's point about the crowds back, I'm going to go back to a, a topic that got me into some trouble at the start of the season, the Brentford game, where I said, um, like, we were all in pain and we just lost and everything looked shit. And yet, like, I, I had my headphones on. I wasn't in any stadium anywhere. And I had it turned up loud and the the fact that the football was alive again with people in the stadium that it mattered that it, mm. like never never take me back to empty stadiums again and i know we hated it and i know gary uh, neville and jamie carraher were dancing with the crowd at brentford and that's our that was our enemy of the day but brentford were just up from the championship football was alive those supporters were going fucking nuts. And some days we'll cry and some days we'll be wounded, but at least you fucking care, right? You're alive. Football was alive. It wasn't this uh, anesthetized, antiseptic football in the stadium, which was an interesting lab- laboratory ex- experiment for a month, uh, but not for a year. And like that, that moment Pain, maybe because of the painfulness of the game, it was just fucking alive and football was back and stadiums were pounding and it mattered to people and people understood why this was the most important game and sport and why it was beyond sport for people. Like this is a big chunk of people's lives. It's not just a game. And you can say sh- should we care about this shit? Well, what else is there to to care about at the end of the day? Mm-hmm. So that that Brentford game is kind of a because it was painful, but because it was just pumping. We really fucking cared that we lost that game, mm-hmm. and it was it was it was a thing. Yeah, I I I think my takeaway from twenty twenty one to follow on from what you said is that. It's just football, and it doesn't really matter that much. <laughs> um, no, I think everything you said is well said. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, for me, one of the takeaways I think is Bukayo Saka, and that's because it's not just the Arsenal part of it. It's what happened with England and what happened to him as a person and how he's rallied from that. And to have a player so young and so talented go through so much so early and come out the other side of it better than ever and still so likable and not grizzled and miserable from the experience, but even even arguably more likable. Um, I just thought that was an incredible thing for him, an incredible thing for us. I think the thing I'll take away is the relationships. The, the relationships, I think, are different now because, you know, we had so many players in 2020, you know, whether it was Willian, whether it was... You know, the, the, you, I don't care who you want to say it was, the Pablo Marie's or the Cedrics or the the Holdings. And, and I realize Rob Holdings is a nice guy like him, so maybe that's a bad example. I'm I'm sort of struggling to find exactly what I mean here. But but when you look at Smith Rowe and Odegaard and Saka and Martinelli and Lakanga and Tomiyasu and Ramsdale and Benjamin White and Gabriel and like Tierney Tavares, like it's a, it's a reimagining of Arsenal in a you know to to Clive's point about good attitudes, but just. It feels fresher. It feels lighter. It feels like everybody kind of wants to rally around them. I learned a little bit of a lesson, I think, in humility, too, just about like, you know, look, I love to say what I think because what else can I say? And if I'm wrong, I I like to believe I hold my hand up and say I'm wrong. And, you know, similarly, there are times I'm right, and I don't like to think that I, someone who gloats over the times I'm right, I say what I say, and I, I go from there. But maybe there were some things over the summer where some of the past negativity had crept into my analysis. And so that's always important to, to flush out. I just, I, I think I feel reconnected to Arsenal, you know, fans in the ground helps getting back to the Emirates stadium and, and over to, to London certainly helped. And I feel blessed to have done that. I think the football has started to recapture my imagination. And so I, I have to agree with, with Paul that, the combination of the the football we were playing, the players we had, and the absence of fans had really, I think, hit a nadir. Now, 
it, it feels back to to the urgency, the relevance, the excitement, and the fun of it. There were there were certainly good performances. There were certainly disappointing ones, but. I look forward to watching Martinelli and Odegaard and Smith Rowe and Saka play. I look forward to watching, you know, Tomiyasu and Ramsdale and Benjamin White, Tavares, Tierney, Gabriel. I look forward to those guys. Um, so, you know, yeah. else I'd, I'd add <clears throat> quickly is that it feels aligned finally up and down the club. Mertesacker's just done an interview, which I haven't fully read, talking about how, you know, going after expensive, experienced, older players – was a throw of the dice that we fell flat on our face for. And now we've, we've changed direction. It's clear that Josh Kroenke is fully involved in that. I'm not trying to give the Kroenkes any credit here, uh, but I much prefer the idea that everybody up and down the organization is on the same page from youth development through the academy, yeah. through Mertesacker, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, Edu, Josh Kroenke, all get it, uh, are all on the same page, and everything makes sense at the moment mm-hmm. in terms yeah. of our recruitment, our direction, the players on the field, what we ought to be doing, what we are doing, uh, young and promising manager who's learning. We're a learning machine at the moment is, is the thing I have always wanted to see, and I feel is the case. We're making lots of mistakes, but we're getting smarter and smarter. Yeah. That the smarter thing too, because for me, like, you know what I didn't like, I didn't like looking at Arsenal being like, wow, we're the dumb club. We're the poorly run club. We're the club that doesn't have, doesn't have a, a prayer. And you know, what are we trying to do? We're trying to buy a parachute by going into the super league. I don't feel that way anymore. And that's nice. So I I don't want to overdo it. There's plenty of time for retrospectives. We literally play uh, in a couple of days, but it will be 2022. So on behalf of all of us for, for Scott and Tim and Clive, and Paul, I wish you a very, very happy new year. I wish you a healthy and prosperous new year. I wish you a new year where maybe we find our way out of the pandemic, find our way out of the mid-table, and find our way back into the top table of life and of football uh, into the Champions League and and beyond. I mean, maybe the title's still on. Who knows? We'll see what happens against City uh, on New Year's Day. But it is an absolute pleasure to share these memories with you. Paul's on Twitter. Pause my pants. Thanks, Pause. Woohoo! Live's on Twitter at Clive BFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. My name is Elliot Smith. You can find me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Just uh, as a content update, we will have an instant reaction pod on New Year's Day, bright and early in America, but normal time uh, in, in other places or super, super early or super overnight, depending on where you are. You get the idea. That'll be right after Manchester City. And then regular service resumes uh, Monday, January 3rd with the post-match podcast to break down how we, the mighty Arsenal, love you and we'll talk to you after... Arsenal 10, Manchester City 0.